John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And just to remind us as you're turning there where, where we are in the storyline of the gospel of, of John. We have been for the last several weeks in what is called the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. So to situate where we are in the story of the life of Jesus Jesus uh, had been doing his ministry out throughout John's gospel. He had been giving various signs of his deity, of who he was, that he was the Messiah. And now we got to, in chapter 13 of John's gospel, we get to this upper room discourse. This is the, the night before Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. He is informing his disciples about his departure, preparing them for leaving. He began by washing their, his, their feet and telling them that they too should do likewise with one another, that they should love one another. He gives them another commandment. And having stressed his union with his disciples and his love for him in John chapter 15, we now come to the passage where he is preparing his disciples for how to cope with his departure and with how to cope with the world that will hate him. That's the subject matter of John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. There's one thing that they must know. He'd given them one command that they were to love one another, uh, which was really an old commandment. You know, to love one another as you love yourself was an old commandment. Jesus now for them says, now you must love one another as I have loved you. And he was about to demonstrate the fullness of that love. But now he's giving them another reminder about something that's going to be very important for both when he's gone and long term, not just his departure to the cross, but his departure, his ascension after his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. And so he's going to talk to them about how to handle being hated by the world. So if you'll follow along as I read John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know me, do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. 
If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And into John chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes to you, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we thank you for these words of, of Jesus, your son, our savior. And we pray now in the next few moments as we um, uh, reflect on these, that we meditate on them, that we unpack their meaning for us, that you would, by your spirit, enable us to, to see and to understand, and that you would give us the strength to, um, to follow the words that Jesus gives here to the apostles um, and by extension to us. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen. So how to handle being hated by the world? First, let me back up by saying, what, what is meant by the world? If you notice verses 18 and 19, I believe six times the, the phrase the world is used there in those verses. Notice that if the world, verse 19, the world, the world. Five times in verse 19 alone was, is the word world is used. We remind ourselves, we saw this very at the very beginning of John's gospel in John chapter 1, but it might be helpful to remind ourselves here. What is meant by the world? The world here is not, because um, there's several different Greek terms that are used to describe the world or earth or creation and those kinds of things. Um, this one is used by John in such a way that he's not referring to like the material universe, but more, uh, and I'm quoting from a, a commentator here, more the created order especially human beings and human affairs in rebellion against its maker. I think we can kind of gain that from the context of how Jesus uses it here. But the world here is the created order, human beings, human, fair, human affairs, human systems that arise because of their rebellion against its creator, its maker. And this is the the result of the fall of sin in the world. People and systems, or the systems that govern the world, set up in such a way that it is in rebellion against God. That's how John uses this term, the world. He uses this many times in his, in his gospel. And so sometimes it's, it's used that the, the world did not know Jesus because of their sin, their rejection of him. The world has hatred towards God and the things of God. And it has patterns of behavior that's acceptable in the world. 
That's why we use the term worldliness to describe those kinds of things. This is language that's coming from John and his usage here. So as it says the world here and the world's hatred of Christians, we need to keep that in mind. So having said that, let me give several lessons here about the world and its hatred. First of all, the world does not naturally hate you. Now, what I mean by this, verse 19, the very first line there, if you, it's talking to his apostles here, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Now, every single person comes into the, into the world as of the world. That's a result of the sin and the result of the fall, the result of the sin of our very first parents. That by nature, every single human person is, is set against God. And so Jesus is acknowledging here that there's... Um, that if you were still part of the world, the world loves you just fine. It's very similar to what, uh, what we saw back in John chapter 7. Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem a couple of times for Passover. And you might remember, he didn't go up to Jerusalem for Passover right away. And his brothers, uh, in this case, I'm sorry, it was not Passover. It was the Feast of Booths. And uh, in this case, his brothers... Uh, as he was still up north, he was still in the Galilee, his brothers, after they watched what Jesus was doing in his ministry and the amount of crowds that were following him, they, they kind of mocked him and encouraged him to go back up to Jerusalem. This is at the very beginning of John. So his brother said, leave here, go to Judea, which is the region where Jerusalem was, that your disciples may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret, but if he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world, they said. Now, it sounds like they were, you know, we saw this as we went through this the first time. It sounds like maybe they were encouraging him to kind of, hey, get your name out there, you know, expand your platform. But no, I think they were mocking him because in the next verse, verse 5, it says, John gives an explanatory comment for not even his brothers believed in him. So they were mocking him. Say, why don't you just go to Jerusalem? You know, get your name out there. And his brothers didn't even believe in him. And Jesus said to this, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Pointing out their unbelief. He says, the world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. It's in their unbelief that Jesus says, you know what, you're, you're just like the world. And so the world, if you're, if you're just like the world, the world loves you just fine. So that's what is meant here by the world does not naturally hate you. Does not naturally, does, would not naturally hate a, a human persons. But here's the second point. The world hates Jesus. That's the point of verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. It's because of Jesus that they would hate Christians. By the mere fact of his presence in the world is an indictment. Just Jesus' coming into the world is an indictment of the sin of the world. 
the sin that the world loves. Again, notice back to Jesus' words in John chapter 7. He's speaking of his brothers. He says, the world doesn't hate you, not because, like, you know, you guys are just fine people, the world like you. No, he's saying, you, the world can't hate you because you're in your unbelief. But the world hates me, he says in verse 7, because I testify about it that its works are evil. So the world hates Jesus because what Jesus' very presence in the world signifies and that is the sin that the world loves and so they hate jesus and i and i have to add here they hate jesus they hate the real jesus not not the jesus that they imagine that they conceive in their mind with maybe what limited knowledge they have from a couple of verses that well jesus didn't he just preach love or didn't he just preach tolerance we'll get to more of that in a moment they would reject a Jesus that would call sin, sin. And that's what the real Jesus does, and that's why the world hates the real Jesus. So the world hates Jesus, and so it gets to the third point here. The world hates you for simply being a Christian. Notice at the end of verse, uh, verse 18, know that it hated me before it hated you. And they only hate you because they hate Jesus and you're united to Jesus. It's because you are not united to Jesus by faith. In other words, it's kind of like guilt by association. And Jesus says here, very interesting in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's their being united to Jesus Christ is why they hate you. Just passes on from their hatred from Jesus just extends right to you. And I love these words here. If we claim Jesus as our Savior, notice what he's saying. No, capture this assurance that's there. He says, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. What does that mean? Well, remember, the world are the people and systems that are set in rebellion against God. And so what he's done here is now in calling these apostles and then to everybody who, is in, who has faith in Jesus now has been brought out of that world, has been brought out of the world that hates God to now having a heart that loves God and loves his truth and everything that he reveals. The apostle Paul says, this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, uh, in this declaration of praise of the work of Jesus. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. This is God the Father. Has delivered us from the domain of darkness, which is another language to refer to this world, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you are not a part of this world, and that's why they hate you. And as a matter of fact, the world will not privilege you above Jesus. If the world hates Jesus, you could count that they're going to hate you. And there's an argument here from the lesser to the greater that Jesus makes in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. 
Okay? So there's, there's a chain of command. It's, it's perhaps easier to show deference to a superior and then, than it is to, say, somebody of a, a lower rank or a lower status. And if Jesus, who has a greater status than we do, and they show no reverence or deference uh, to him, then he, as our master, then we as his servants, we can expect that we won't get any deference from the world either. So the world hates you simply for being a Christian, okay? The world hates you just, just by the fact that you are a Christian. But notice verse four, or number four here, point number four, the world really hates you if you represent Jesus. The world really hates you if you represent him. Notice in this in the rest of verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But on account of all these, uh, but on all of these things, they will do to you on account of my name. And then even mentioning verse 27 here, um, Jesus mentions that you also will bear witness about him because you've been with me from the beginning. Okay? The world may despise you. Uh, the, world, the world may despise you. The world will despise you for being a Christian, but they may tolerate you if you stay quiet. If you keep your faith between you and God, there's a measure of, of acceptance of you or toleration of you. If you keep your Christian life confined to Sunday morning, that would be fine with them. If you keep your Christian life inside of the four walls of your church or within your home, they tend to not have a problem. They would still hate you, but it's when you represent Jesus to the world that they get a little more hostile. It's when you stand on the truth of God publicly as God has revealed himself in scripture and nature, that's when they become a little bit more unaccepting. They're hostile if you stand on the truth. They may hate you internally as Christians, uh, but they will hate you externally if you have the boldness to live out your faith publicly. They really start to hate you because you are actually being a servant of your master. You're doing what he tells you to. He's, you're obeying him. So you're there. Hatred from them should be expected. Now, here's what I mean by this. In, where, where are you seeing this, Aaron? Okay, well, let me just show you here. Notice out in verses 18 and 19, it's, it's kind of using the language that's internal motivation, hate. Four times it's used in those two verses, 18 and 19. Hate. This is kind of an internal uh, disposition. The world will hate you. But notice how it moves from this internal motivation or disposition to an outward manifestation, which is persecution in verse 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So notice that it moves from, from this inward disposition to an outward manifestation here. 
So we can expect persecution. And I think you're even seeing persecution. Now, sometimes this is quite often mocked. You know, Christians in the United States today aren't persecuted, not like they are in other places in the world. And I would say for sure, that's for sure true. Uh, but that does not mean that because it does not match the level of intensity, does not mean it's, it's not real. I think we can all think of examples in which this is the case. And so we, do, we are to expect this. This is what Jesus is preparing us for here. Uh, they will hate you just because you're united to me, but they will really hate you if you represent me. So we should come to expect it. The author of this gospel also wrote a letter, and in that letter in 1 John chapter 3, he says this, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. John here takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. To the very first murder that ever took place. And notice the parallel that's, that's here. As Cain was offering, uh, as, as Abel brought the first of his, of his uh, flock, and Cain brought some of the fruits of the ground as an offering to God, and the Lord accepted Abel's, but Cain's he rejected. And a lot of people have a lot of questions like, well, what's happening in that passage? What did, what did Cain do wrong? If we let the later scriptures tell us a little bit what's happening here, we get an example. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil. So whatever Cain had done in his sacrifice, it was clearly evil and did not represent an obedient, heartfelt um, obedience and reverence to God like Abel's did. But notice the, re the, the parallel here. Cain is paralleled with the world and, is, and their own evil deeds, which culminate in hate and murder, whereas Abel is paralleled here with Christians, that he was righteous by faith, and the call here is to, to love with an open heart. So the world hates you for simply being a Christian, but the world really hates you if you live it out. Like Abel was living it out publicly before his brother. And the number five here, the world hates Jesus because fundamentally it hates God. The world hates Jesus because fundamentally it hates God. Notice verses 23 and 24. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And then again, the other, the rest in verse 20, uh, 24. Um, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Now, they would not be guilty of sin. There's not saying that they were kind of like spiritually neutral or morally neutral. He's saying that uh, prior to their rejection of him, they were still guilty of sin. But when God has fully revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, which has all been a theme all throughout John's gospel, he's saying, as I've come and revealed myself and they reject me, then that's, their, their guilt is now obvious. But notice it says here, he goes, if they hate me, they hate my father also. Oftentimes it's, it's said that the blame for why um, 
why many people in the world today reject Christianity, don't want to become Christians. Um, the blame is often cast on Christians or things like this. You've probably heard something like this. Reasons so many people are turned off to Christianity is because of the actions of Christians. Right? Have you heard something similar to this sort of thing? Or they're hypocrites. Or uh, I don't like Christians because they're against blank, fill in the blank. And they're not for love and tolerance like Jesus was. It seems like an effective talking point until you really start to probe and you dig into what actions it is that they're really truly objecting to. And oftentimes, it's not to say that there aren't a few you know, jerks out there, but oftentimes when you really start to probe into what, the, what they're objecting to is that what they're objecting to is when Christians stand on moral and doctrinal truths that, that are revealed in the Bible. If you really start to, to pluck away it, it says, what is it that you're really upset about? Why is it that you think that you have a problem with Christians? And it turns out what they have a problem, the problem that they have with Christians is that the Christians actually believe in Christianity, <laughs> you know? In other words, it's often presented that they would be totally cool with Christianity if Christians just accepted things like, again, fill in the blank, any of the, the hot button issues of the day. Or basically, they, it's often presented as they would be totally willing to accept Christianity to, as long as it was kind of a Christless Christianity. Their judgments against Christians is that the Christians would have a gall to hold Christian beliefs, to which I hope many of us would say, guilty as charged. So the world hates Jesus, as Jesus says here, fundamentally because they hate God. Which does speak to uh, various other religions that might claim you know, some affinity to Jesus and claim that they're religious and claim that they love God, but then would reject Jesus. We've seen this already. And if you don't get Jesus, you don't get the Father. If you try to have a God of some way that rejects the person of his son, then you don't get the Father either. So that's number five. Number six, the world's hatred was foreknown and foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. Notice this in verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. Now, he says their law. Here he's talking about the religious leaders who are about ready to arrest and crucify Jesus. They're the ones who claim that they love God. They claim to hold to the Old Testament scriptures. But even in the Old Testament scriptures, this is why Jesus says their law. It, but not that he's distancing himself from that law, but he's saying what is written in their law, meaning they're even more doubly guilty for it. And he says, they hated me without cause. The world's hatred was foreknown and foretold of. The world's hatred of Christ and the world's hatred of Christians was foreknown and foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. But notice this last one, number seven. The world's hatred will be almost religious in its zeal. The world's hatred will be almost religious in its zeal. And this takes us into chapter 16. 
where Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming. Then when whoever kills you will think he is offering sacrifice to God. Wow. And of course, you don't have to go very far in the weeks that after Jesus utters these words, those very types of things were happening in the weeks and years immediately following. As you trace through the story of the book of Acts, you could see as the early church was expanding and growing and they were preaching about who Jesus was to the world and people were coming. There was it was also met with a very violent and persecution and, and reaction. And indeed, they were arresting them and jailing them. And as a matter of fact, one of the leading Pharisees of the day was leading the charge to go and have Christians killed. Of course, that's the Apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament because the Lord had plucked him out and saved him. But notice that their world's hatred can reach almost religious zeal. Those are a couple of lessons from this passage. But, but what do we do about it? What do we do? How do we handle being hated by the world? So I have an, an acronym here for us too. Pretty clever, I thought. How do you handle being hated by the world? And so, so some of these are a stretch. Just, you know, you get the idea. But um, the L-O-V-E. How do we handle? Well, love. How about this? Love. And so four things in which we'll have passages from uh, verses from in here, but also from many other parts of the scripture. How do you handle being hated by the world? Well, first of all, listen carefully to Jesus's warning here. You know, this, the saying to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So to set your resolve to know that it is coming, Jesus said in verse one of chapter 16, I've, why have I said all these things to you to keep you from falling away? You, you need to know in advance to be forewarned is to be forearmed. So to know that it's coming. So when you know that it's coming, you mentally can prepare yourself for, for what is to happen. Again, in verse 4, But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, what hour is that? Well, the hour when they might even kill you as a sacrifice to God. When that hour comes, that you may remember that I told them to you. I told you that this was going to happen. So listen carefully to Jesus' warning. How do we prepare? How do we handle being hated by the world? Listen, we know, know that it's coming. But number two, obey and trust. O, obey and trust. Walk in obedience to Christ and faith in him. Obey the leading of the Holy Spirit, which is interesting because we saw in John's gospel uh, in chapter 14 and in 16, that Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit. Remember that a couple of weeks ago, we looked at uh, Jesus was talking about the parakletos, the counselor who was going to come. And then notice it's, it's wedged right in there. Those two verses, verses 26 and 27 at the end of 15. And as you're experiencing persecution, one of the things you're going to have to do is lean upon the Holy Spirit. When the helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Look at many of the other passages here. Let me just read a couple of them in the Bible that talks about how when we're in walking in obedience and in trust with God to know that he is present there even in the midst of the persecution. Psalm 23. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Or Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, the Lord says. Fear not, for I am with you, he says a couple of verses later. So too, Matthew, at the end of Matthew's gospel, as Jesus is commissioned to his disciples as he is about ready to ascend up into the heavens, and he ends it with, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But I love this passage from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when he talks about all the persecution that he experienced in his missionary endeavors to share Christ with the world. He says, we were afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul in the midst of all of this and going, I'm just, I trust and I obey, and I know he is present here. And that we should pray for one another. We should pray for those who persecute us, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. And I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Walking in obedience and trust also means maintaining a holy life in the face of persecution. 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. A few verses later, he says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And then in the next chapter, Peter says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, that is the persecutors, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So walk in obedience and trust, leaning on the Holy Spirit, praying for other people who are experiencing persecution and praying for the persecutors and maintaining a holy life. That's the O. We have L and the O, and then here's the V. Remember, vindication and victory will come. Vindication and victory will come. And this will come at Christ's return. Vindication and victory will come at Christ's return. And keeping in mind that vindication and that victory to come is what sustains us and gives us the endurance that we need to face this persecution and suffer the persecution. Many places. And let me just give you a bunch of these verses here. I, I was like, I could just quote them. I'm just going to put them on the screen. I want you to see them. Second Timothy 1. He says, which is why I suffer as I do. He's talking about the persecutions he experienced. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day, 
the day when he comes back, Christ comes back, and the judgment is happening, he goes, he, I am convinced he is able to guard until that day what will be entrusted, what has been entrusted to me. Or 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Here, you're suffering for the kingdom of God. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He's saying, like, you're going to experience the suffering here, and he goes, and I'm experiencing these sufferings, and, and you're experiencing these sufferings, but it's helpful to keep in mind that one day he is going to come back and that he is going to judge all wrongdoing. And I pray that everybody that I preach to would turn from their wrongdoing and trust in Christ, that their sins could then be forgiven and they could be reconciled to God. But if they maintain their steadfast, absolute reje rejection of God and rebellion against him, that there will come a day Jesus is going to come back. And notice the picture here with mighty angels in a flaming fire. That picture is what enables Paul to sustain. Or what about this, Revelation chapter 2? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Vindication and victory will come. Or Revelation chapter 7. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who, who are these? He just saw this multitude of people. Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And the, the angel asked this to, to John. He says, I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and they made them white in the blood of the lamb. And he continues in chapter 12. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Many other passages. I, I had a bunch of passages here that speak about the vindication and the victory that will come to believers when Christ returns. And that many times that that is used as a reference or as support for how we can maintain in while the world hates us. So how do we handle being hated by the world? L, listen to Jesus' warning. O, obey and trust. V, vindication and victory will come. And then lastly, E, exultation. Exultation or exult in the hatred and persecution. Okay, notice it's a you there. It's exult, not exalt. It's exult, which the Dictionary definition for the verb would be to feel or to show triumphant elation or jubilation. Or exultation is the fee a feeling of triumphant elation and jubilation, rejoicing. Okay, I was going to use the word enjoy for this. You know, listen, obey, vindication, and enjoy. Like, enjoy the persecution. But that sounds kind of weird. In a sense, it's true. Um, but, but I love the exult in it. Rejoice in it. And here's, here's why. Because I think the scripture tells us to. Romans 5. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. We rejoice. We exult when we're experiencing hatred from the world. It's hard, but we, we exult in it. Jesus said, blessed are you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Rejoice. For your reward is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets before you. Acts chapter 5. When the apostles were reprimanded before the council, the Jewish council, and it says they left the presence of the council and they were rejoicing. Why? That they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor of his name. Or chapter 16. I love this. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off them, gave orders to beat them with rods. And then when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them in prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, fastened their feet in stocks. And what did Paul and Barnabas do? About midnight, Paul, or excuse me, Silas. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening. Or this from the Apostle Peter, and this will be enough for us to close. 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. <laughs> to look, just think about that. The, how, how can we know that the spirit of glory and God rests upon us? When people are insulting you for the name of Christ. And then verse 16. If, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. How do you handle being hated by the world? Well, listen carefully to Jesus' warning. Know that it's coming. Continue to walk in trust and obedience to him, knowing that his presence is with us even in the midst of it. And to remember that vindication will come when he returns. But in the meantime, we exalt, we rejoice in the suffering because it's an honor to have that happen to us for the name of Christ. Amen. We're going to close our time together by taking the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, on the night before his arrest, he gave this meal to his disciples. And what better way for us to, to leave our gathering here to go out into a world that would hate us, but to be reminded of what Jesus did in love for the world. That his body would be broken. That his blood would be poured out. 
that his broken body and shed blood was receiving the wrath that God had on the sins of the world. And the call is for all who would turn to Jesus in faith and repent of their sins, that their sins could be forgiven. And that Jesus takes the wrath that you deserve. And then you get the resurrected life that Jesus received as vindication. So let's stand together. Let's pray for this meal that God has given us. I invite you to come to the table. If you are a Christian, you have faith in Jesus Christ. This table is for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this day that you have made, that we can rejoice, that we could be glad in this. We thank you that as in the presence of brothers and sisters, your spirit is here, that your word was read and it was heard. And God, we ask that your word would do its work in us. And now we take this ordinance, this sacrament that you have given to your people to nourish us spiritually with that good news that our sins are forgiven in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we thank you for this meal you've given us. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name and all God's people said, amen.